This passage of Scripture maybe is one of the more well-known passages of Scripture that we will consider as we study the life of Simon Peter, but it really is, in some ways, his greatest moment. But in a deeper way, it's also a, a spiritual checkup, a discipleship checkup. Now, you know what it's like to go to the doctor to have a checkup, right? I recently established care with like a real grown-up doctor. So this is like the first time I've like really had a doctor since I was getting Ninja Turtle Band-Aids and suckers for being a good boy. So this is kind of a big deal for me, but I had to go establish care and I had to go for a checkup. And you know what it's like. You, you go in and what's the first thing they do when you go to a new doctor? They give you that binder of paperwork, right? And so you've got to start filling all of this out about any issues that you're having, all of your medical information, your insurance information, whether your maternal great-great-grandfather smoked and all this kind of stuff, and just go all through this long history. You turn that back in, and then you wait, and you wait. You have to get there 20 minutes early so that they can be 20 minutes late, you know. And so you've got this window of time, and, and you've read the June 1984 edition of Good Housekeeping, and you wait, and you wait. And you wait. And finally, somebody pops out. A young lady probably will pop out, and she will say, Mr. Carr, the doctor will see you now. And I'm always looking around for Mr. Carr. Like, Who's that? <laughs> it's weird he has my last name. Is my dad here? Mr. Carr, the doctor will see you now. And then as you move from the waiting room into the exam room, the first thing they're going to do is put you on a scale. And evidently, they've moved out of the clang, 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 clang scales because they don't want you to feel like you're at a cattle auction anymore. And they've got a, a, you know, a nice scale for you just to stand on. It gives the number. And it does not matter where you go to the doctor. That scale is always going to weigh you 10 pounds heavier than your scale at home. And then the young lady with the paper, she's going to see that, and she's going to go, hmm. 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 And then they're going to take you back and set you on the, the table with the paper thing on it, and you're going to sit there all awkwardly, and she's going to take your temperature. But they don't use the thermometer anymore either, do they? Now they've got the Star Trek thing, beep, and it's never right. Beep. Okay, Mr. Carr, looks like your temperature is 83.2. Does that sound right? I don't know. And then they'll check your blood pressure. Oh, Mr. Carr, your blood pressure is a little high today. Well, I've just found out I'm overweight and hypothermic, so of course my blood pressure is high. I'm stressed out. <laughs> At this moment. But at some point, they're going to check your blood pressure. They may check your oxygen. The doctor will finally come in sometime the next week and listen to your heart with his stethoscope and then put it on your back and listen to your lungs. And he does that because he wants to check your vital signs to make sure all of those organs inside of you that you need to keep living are healthy and are functioning well. That's what this passage of Scripture is going to do for us today. It's going to check our vital signs, give us a discipleship checkup. And I think this is important for us this morning because, frankly, some of y'all probably need a discipleship checkup. I worry that some of y'all have a really bad case of spiritual arteriosclerosis. Like your heart is getting hard to the things of God. Things that used to move you, things that used to grip you, things that used to excite you. None of that is happening inside of you anymore. Some of us might have a really bad case of spiritual Alzheimer's. We don't remember the goodness of God to us anymore. We don't remember how far He reached down to save us. And we don't remember the promises that He has made about what is to come for the people of God. Some of you have really, really bad spiritual myopia. You're nearsighted. You can't see past the way you feel this morning. 
You can't see past what's coming the end of the week. And you can't have, and you don't have a heavenly perspective and vision for the rest of your life. We need a spiritual checkup. Let's read together what this looks like and says to us this morning. Matthew 16 and verse number 13 says, Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abideth forever. Who do the crowds say that I am? That's the question that is on Jesus' mind in Matthew chapter number 16. Who do the crowds say that I am? And he asks it at a really, really important moment. It's not merely that Jesus is just trying to poll the audience and do some PR research and maybe figure out how he needs to adjust his ministry to be more effective. But really in Matthew chapter number 16, Jesus has come to a fork in the road in his ministry. And in the very next paragraph, a story that we will consider probably from Mark's gospel next Lord's Day morning, Jesus takes a hard right as he focuses himself on the city of Jerusalem. And he tells the disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and there I'm going to be betrayed, there I'm going to be crucified, there I'm going to be killed, and then I will rise again the third day. From this moment in Jesus' ministry, Jesus sets his face to the cross and says, nothing is going to stop me from going to die. And so really, this is something like a midterm exam for the disciples. Have they been paying attention? Are they studying? Who do the crowds say that I am? And it's significant where Jesus asked this. The Bible says he asked it in Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was kind of a petri dish of all sorts of religious ideals and even cults and some, some weird stuff. There was, it's named Caesarea, there was a temple to the venerated Caesar Augustus built by Herod the Great in Caesarea Philippi. In the caves around Caesarea Philippi, there were statues to the Greek god Hermes. And there was even a place called the Grotto of Pan. If you remember your Greek mythology, you remember Pan. That's half man, half deer, walked around playing the the flute thing. They worshipped Pan in Caesarea Philippi. And so everywhere you looked in Caesarea Philippi, there was another god or another great man to capture your attention and arrest your gaze. And amidst all of these temples and amidst all of these statues, Jesus says, who do they say that I am? Who am I to these confused people? And the disciples start to tell him, right? They report back in verse number 14. Well, you know, some say you're John the Baptist. I love John the Baptist. He's one of my favorite characters in all the Bible. And the reason is because John is a fire and brimstone preacher. Like he has no problem confronting people saying, your problem is you need to repent. Like he's not manicured, well-groomed, megachurch pastor. You know, you generation of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? No, John says, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. And you need to prepare yourself for the coming of the king. Man, that fires me up, right? 
And so John has this ministry calling people to repent. And people look at Jesus and they see that. They say, Jesus has this apocalyptic vision for the future. He's calling people to change. And maybe you're like John. Then some said Jesus was like Elijah. And Elijah really was the most celebrated miracle worker in the Old Testament. He resurrected somebody from the dead. And they saw Jesus doing these impossible-to-explain miracles. And they said, Jesus, maybe you're like Elijah. You're coming to renew the spiritual life of the people of Israel by doing the supernatural and the unexplainable. But then there are some people, Lord, they say you're like Jeremiah. You know, Jeremiah was a weeping prophet. Now, Jeremiah would preach, but he'd also cry. And Jeremiah would preach truth to power and stand up against injustice. And people saw Jesus identifying with the poor and the helpless and the marginalized. And they said, Jesus, you know, maybe you're another Jeremiah who's come to set everything wrong Right. Those are all really good answers, but they're not quite good enough, are they? But I also think as you get to hear a little bit of this diversity of opinion, opinion about Jesus from his contemporaries, it reminds me of our world today because everybody has an idea of who Jesus is, don't they? Like whether they're right or wrong, everybody's got an idea. In fact, Jesus really has become a historical figure who's kind of passed into the clouds of legend so that he's become totally malleable and mythical, we can, make Je- we can make Jesus to be anything we want him to be, right? Like if you want a navy suit Jesus with a red tie and an American flag lapel pin, who was, lapel pin who was crucified to make America great again, you can have that Jesus. Or if you want a Jesus who sits at a coffee shop and sips soy lattes while he pass around, passes around petitions to ban no-kill animal shelters, you can find that Jesus. And if you want Birkenstock Jesus who wears crystals and aligns everybody's spiritual chakras and readjusts their energy, you can have that. You can have any Jesus that you want. But who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? That's when the test begins for the disciples. This is where our checkup begins today. This is when we move out of the waiting room into the exam room. Who do you say that he is? And it's the first really diagnostic tool that Dr. Jesus uses to test our spiritual health. Do we have heaven's view of Jesus? Do we see Jesus the way God sees Jesus? A healthy disciple always sees Jesus the way that God sees Jesus. Who do you say that I am? In verse number 15. And Peter, who's always quick to blurt out the answer without raising his hand, who's always quick to answer back, even if he doesn't really get the question. He responds, well, God, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? The Son of the living God. And in this case, Peter's blurting finally pays off. So there's hope for some of us that like to trip over our own tongues in life every now and then. There's hope for us, y'all, all right? Peter gets it absolutely, totally right. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Who is Jesus to you? Would you agree with what Peter says here? Would you agree with this assessment of who Jesus is? It's not the lengthiest assessment. It's not necessarily the most theologically rich or deepest. But would you agree with what Peter says? Well, maybe we need to know what Jesus say, Peter says. What does Peter say when he answers, you are the Christ? Let's break this down into its component parts. First, you are the Christ. What does the word Christ mean? The English word Christ comes from transliteration of the Greek word Christos, which is in itself used for the Hebrew word Meshach, which is the Hebrew word for Messiah. Christ and Messiah are the exact same word. And what those words mean are chosen one. 
or anointed one. Jesus says, or Peter says, Jesus, you are the chosen one. You are the anointed one. The name name Christ is not really a name at all. You know, sometimes we think it's Jesus' last name. Like you've got Mary Christ and Joseph Christ and you have baby Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is not a name at all. Christ is a title. And it comes from ancient Jewish life and ancient Jewish expectations that in the course of Jewish history, there were people that were chosen, people who were anointed to do specific tasks. And in the regular rhythm of life, there were three offices where people were anointed, literally anointed, like with olive oil on their forehead, to perform specific tasks. They were prophet, priest, and king. And I think that when Peter says, Jesus, you are the anointed one, you are the Christ, what he is saying is, Jesus, you are our true prophet. You are our great high priest, and you are our king. He's saying, Jesus, you are a prophet. You've come not only to tell us the truth about God, you are the truth about God. You are not merely a messenger from God, you are the message of God. You are not merely proclaiming the word of God in new ways, you are the living word of God walking in our world. You are God making himself known. Jesus is God preaching. But Jesus is also our priest. He's saying that like a priest would take the concerns and the needs and even the sins of the people and represent those sinful people in the presence of a holy God they could not approach. Peter says, Jesus, you are the one who wraps us up in himself so that you can take us into the presence of the holy God. Folks, Jesus is the question of how sinners like us could be safe in the presence of a God who ought to judge us. As the Apostle Paul said, there's one mediator between God and man, and it is the man Christ Jesus who takes our name, takes our failures, takes our sin on himself, and represents us now before God so that we have access in him. But he is also the anointed king. Yes, he is the king of the Jews. Yes, he is the king of Israel. Yes, he is the son of David. But he is king of kings and lord of lords. He is the king to end all kings. Peter blurts out and says, Lord, you are all of that. You are every bit of that and more. But then he says, you are the son of God. Now, it would not necessarily be unusual for somebody to tell another that they were the Messiah. There were a lot of would-be Messiahs around the life of Jesus, before and after. But for a Jewish man like Peter to call another Jewish man the Son of God, he's saying something that nobody would dare say. Nobody would dare think because he's saying that you are a man who is equal with God. You are the God-man. You are one divine essence, but you are a different person. You are homoousia. You are God in flesh, the one in eternal relationship with God walking among us. This was a very specific Old Testament way of thinking about the Messiah. Brother Bill read these passages for us earlier from Psalm chapter number 2. There was the expectation that one day God would establish a messianic king that he would say, this is my son. And when Peter says this, he says, you are that son. You are the Davidic son from 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God had promised David that he would have a son to reign over Israel. You are the Davidic son, but you are also the divine son. So let me ask you today. 
because Peter's not here. He's already passed his class. But now you sit where he sits, and the test is laid in front of you. Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you agree with what Peter says here? Do you believe what Peter gives witness to in Matthew chapter number 16? Do you believe that Jesus is the one perfect man, born of a virgin named Mary, laid in a manger outside of Bethlehem, adored by shepherds and worshipped by wise men? Do you believe that? Do you believe that from Bethlehem Jesus grew up in favor and wisdom with with favor and stature of men and God? Do you believe that he grew up to live the one perfect life that you sure ain't going to live? And do you believe that the one thing Jesus earned with his life was nails in his hands and a crown of thorns on his brow? And do you believe that they took his garments and they gambled over them at the foot of the cross? And do you believe that his enemies walked by and mocked him while he died? And they spit in his face. And do you believe that after he cried out for water, after six hours of that pain, before he hung his head and gave up the ghost, do you believe that he said, it is finished? And do you believe that there was a perfect sacrifice and atonement made for your sin so that you could be reconciled to God? And do you believe that three days after Jesus died, that one Sunday morning he walked out of a borrowed tomb and the only thing that he left behind in that tomb was his grave clothes and a folded napkin saying, I am alive and everything is being wrapped up nice and neat. And do you believe that some 40 days after he rose again, he ascended back to the right hand of the majesty on high where he now sustains and holds everything together by the word of his power where he reigns as king of kings and lord of lords. And do you believe that that resurrected savior who still bears in his body the marks of the cross says to a world of sinners today, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is none else. Do you believe that? So I would ask you today, who do you believe that the Son of Man is? Some of you would say today, that Son of Man is the best friend that I've ever had. That when everybody else walked out on me, he was the one who was walking in. Some of you would say that that Son of Man is my Savior who loved me when I was unlovable and who reached down into my darkness and into my death and gave me eternal life. Some of you would say that Son of Man is my Lord. I have turned my life over to him to walk with him forever. Who is Jesus to you? Who do you say that he is? Peter says, well, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And I don't don't know that you could surprise Jesus. But there's almost an element of surprise at this in verse 17 when he responds. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus knew what he was going to say before he said it. But still, I'm surprised. Peter. A plus plus, dude. Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of John, Simon Johnson, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus says something remarkable here, and I want you to hear me when I tell you this. That if you do sincerely from your heart believe all of those things I just told you about the Lord Jesus, If you do believe in his sinless life, if you do believe in his substitutionary death, if you do believe in his bodily resurrection, and I forgot this one, but if you do believe in his soon coming, if you believe in that, you believe in that because his father revealed it to you. What I mean to tell you today is this. Churches do not make Christians. Parents do not make Christians. 
Sinners do not make Christians. God makes Christians. He's the one who turns the light on in their heart about who Jesus is. The Word of God says in 1 Corinthians chapter number 2 and verse number 14 that the natural man does not receive the things of God, for they are foolishness to him. John chapter 1, verse number 11 through 13. He came into his own, and his own received him not. But to as many as who did receive him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, who were born not of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but they're born of God. Think about this. We talk about being born again all the time, right? You must be born again. That's what Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse number 3. You must be born again. And if you are here today and you know Jesus like Peter knows him, you have been born again. But you didn't birth yourself, did you? You didn't birth yourself the second time any more than you birthed yourself the first time. It took a supernatural work of God doing for you and in you something you could not do for yourself. The Bible says that you have been adopted into the family of God. The thing about adoption is that kids don't choose whom adopts them. The father chooses whom he adopts. The Bible says you have been resurrected from your trespasses and sins. Dead people do not just live. They need a living God to resurrect them. The Bible says, Romans chapter 9, read the second half of Romans chapter 9. It'll help you if you let it. The Bible says that you are a vessel of honor crafted by God, our divine potter. But that hunk of clay on the potter's wheel does not decide what it becomes. The potter is the one who shapes it. The potter is the one who says, oh, no, Brother Jesse, listen. I'm in this thing because I figured it out. I'm in this thing because I was raised right. I'm in this thing because I made good decisions. Let me tell you something. Your decisions and your capacity to make them is exactly what you needed to be saved from. Your will wasn't helping you a bit. You needed the will of God, which was stronger, to conquer you and claim you and reveal to you what you never could figure out until God clued you in. And say, well, Brother Jesse, what does that mean for me now that I'm saved? What that means for you now is that you have been saved by grace alone. That God has done something unexpected and incredible and, yes, amazing in you. That's remarkable. That's remarkable that God would reveal the eternal truth about His Son to sinners like us. And just say to us, while we're going about our lives, living our lives in rebellion to God, God would say, I'm going to take that sinner and I'm going to let them see Jesus the way I see him. Because that's exactly what happened to you, isn't it? Because there was a time in your life, 5, 10, 15, 20, however many years ago, when you didn't love Jesus, did you? You didn't even care about Jesus. You didn't see any beauty in Jesus. You didn't see any glory in Jesus. And now you do. We'll say, what in the world happened? I'm going to tell you what happened is that God sent the Spirit to let you know what He knew about Jesus. And He brought you into a relationship with Him to see these things. Now, a healthy disciple has heaven's view of Jesus. But then as Jesus and Peter speak, the conversation changes directions. In verse 17, blessed are you. And then He says in verse number 18, I tell you. What happens is after... Peter describes who Jesus is. Jesus begins to describe who Peter will be. And so a healthy disciple not only has heaven's view of Jesus, but they also have Jesus' vision of themselves. A person who's healthy in their relationship with God sees Jesus the way God sees Jesus. But they also see themselves the way God sees themselves. 
What does that look like here in this text? Well, I need to warn you that these verses of Scripture are among the, if not the very most hotly contested verses in all the Bible in the history of Christianity. For 2,000 years, Christians of different stripes have been arguing exactly about what these verses mean. Primarily because these are the verses that the Roman Catholic Church uses to establish uh, their office of the papacy. Right? This is why they have a pope, is because of this conversation. And so the guy in the special golf cart that's bulletproof with the weird hat, it's all because of this. All right? And what they, would, what they would say to you is something like this. And I'm not trying to misrepresent, I have Catholic friends, I'm not trying to misrepresent them. What they would say to you is that in this conversation, that God or Jesus gave Peter the keys to his church, gave him a special and unique authority in the church, and he would become the foundation of the church. And that Peter, at, later in life, would become the bishop or the overseeing pastor of the church of Rome, which is the most important church in all the world. And so that when the person who is the bishop of Rome, which is the pope, the bishop of Rome, speaks ex officio out of his office as the bishop of Rome, what he says is infallible and true and binding for all Christian behavior and for all Christian belief. Now, there's a lot between Matthew 16 and that. A whole lot that ain't in the Bible, all right? That's the problem. But that's what they will tell you. But is that true? Is Peter hearing from Jesus here, Peter? You are so special and so unique. I'm going to build everything on you. I would say no. I would say no because of a couple of reasons. The first one is very, very technical, but it is very, very important. And the technical reason is that the Greek doesn't work. It doesn't bear out. Here's what I mean. He says to Peter, you are Peter. That's a masculine noun because it's a masculine name. He says, you are Peter. You are, and the, and the Greek word is something like a rock. You are, he nicknamed him Rocky is what he did. You are the rock. And upon this rock, that's a feminine noun. And the weird thing about Greek is they have masculine nouns, feminine nouns, and neuter nouns. And so what you have here is a masculine noun and a feminine noun. So you've got Mr. Rock and Ms. Rock. All right? And in Greek, you don't have masculine nouns and feminine nouns talking about the same object or person ever. Ever. You do not have masculine nouns and feminine adjectives describing the same object. Ever. Ever. So here we're talking about two different things. This is a play on words. Peter is not the rock. And the second reason, I think, is because the flow of the sentence really doesn't bear it out well. In what I mean is, none of this is about what Peter's going to do for Jesus. This is all about what Jesus is going to do for Peter. He says, I will make you. I will build you. I'm the one who names you. I will do this. I will do that. My church this. My church that. Who is the foundation of the church? It's Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 20 says, The church built upon the foundation of the prophets and apostles has Christ as its cornerstone. Now, that may not seem to be very important to you, but maybe at some point it will be if you ever try to share the gospel with a Roman Catholic. But what is important for us, I think, is where Peter says in verse number 18, or where Jesus says, On this rock I will build my church. This is one of the most important verses in the New Testament because, as far as I can tell, this is the first time that the word church ever came out of Jesus' mouth. The word church is a word that means an assembly. It really means more of a gathering of people than it does any kind of religious building. It's a congregation, really, is what it is. Jesus says, Peter, I'm going to use you and you are going to be instrumental, and Peter was, in making a people. I just want to stop right here for a minute and tell you that Jesus is making a people. Okay? 
what a lot of us have done and what a lot of us have believed, and I think this is one of our biggest flaws in our church, is many of us really do believe that Jesus saves people, and he does. But we've never connected the dots to see that Jesus is saving a people. Okay? He doesn't just save a bunch of individuals, even though he does. But those individuals whom he saves become a body. But if we just believe that Jesus saves people, then what we can have is this kind of individualized, privatized relationship with Jesus that does not include his body, the church. And I say that to you to say this, that's what some of y'all have, or you think you have. Okay, like, like you talk about hearing from Jesus, and you talk about reading the Word, you talk about praying, and you talk about all these great, wonderful things that are happening in your relationship with God. But if you have a relationship with Jesus, you're connected to Him, and you're disconnected from His body, the church, you are not in a right relationship with Jesus. That is not New Testament Christianity. Nobody that knew Jesus or followed Him ever would have been able to understand that kind of relationship with Jesus. Jesus may have given you a personal relationship with him, but he did not give you a private relationship with him. When Jesus saves people, he puts them in church. And Sharon Heights, you need to hear that because some of us are really, really bad at relating to one another. We treat each other sinfully. We talk to each other with anger. We do not forgive people that sin against us. We avoid people. We look for reasons to pull back and withdraw. That does not honor God. It misrepresents the gospel of Christ who says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. That you avoid one another at Piggly Wiggly. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples. That you come as late as you can on Sunday morning and leave as early as you can to make sure you don't actually have a conversation with anybody. Folks, that's sinful. That's wrong. It dishonors God. And it proves that we do not understand the work of God in Christ to form a church. A healthy disciple is connected to the church. They're part of the church. You say, Brother Jesse, you're just saying that because you want people to come to church. Well, first of all, duh, I'm a pastor. Like, people, people are just shocked that I would want people to come to church. Like, who does he think he is? Well, look around. But no, I'm concerned that some of you are withering spiritually because you're cutting yourself off from the root. You're cutting yourself off from the vine. We need one another. We need one another. You're not going to make it without the brothers and sisters around you. So some of y'all have been keeping up with my pumpkin journey on Facebook. If you're not, you really should be. Friend me on Facebook so you can keep up with my pumpkins. I decided... At Halloween last year, I was going to take seeds from my pumpkins and I was going to plant them so I could grow my own pumpkins. And my master plan was to grow a bunch of pumpkins, collect the seeds from those pumpkins, and plant this whole field back here in pumpkins so that next fall we would sell those pumpkins like a pumpkin patch at the church for missions or something. I don't know. But I've got a problem with my pumpkins. This is my prayer request for today. And the problem with my pumpkins is that my pumpkins are only producing male flowers. Now, I didn't know that you had to have a male pumpkin flower and a female pumpkin flower to make pumpkins. I know more about pumpkin reproduction than anybody would ever want to know. But I don't have female flowers. And because I don't have female flowers, I'm not going to have any pumpkins unless I get some female flowers quick. And if I do get any, they're going to be like Christmas pumpkins and not Halloween pumpkins anyway. But <laughs> Why? 
Why? Because without the female flower, the male flower will bloom for a few days and then he'll shrivel up and die. Without the male flower, the female flower will bloom and she'll never be pollinated, she'll never produce. They have to have one another. You have to have the people around you to bless you, to equip you, to enrich you. And without that, all you're going to do is you're going to wither up, you're going to bloom for a few moments and wither up and die. And that's happening to some of you. But he says to Peter here, Peter, I'm going to build my church. And I love the next phrase. Peter, I'm going to build that church and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus said, Peter, you don't know much about the church stuff yet. But Peter, I could look ahead 2,000 years later. And there'll be a bunch of rednecks in Brookside, Alabama with a hillbilly preacher from the mountains of North Carolina. And even though it might seem like the world is against them, and it might seem like their country has turned away from God, and it may seem like that sometimes they get in their own way and trip over their own feet. I assure you, Peter, that the gates of hell will not prevail against those people. And Peter, I assure you that when the story's over, when history is written, and when the future has come fully, when the kingdom is inaugurated, that ragtag group of people, they will stand in my victory. They will share in my triumph. They will live eternally in my joy. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church, not even just Jesus, but against his people that he's reigning through and working in and ruling over that worship him. The gates of hell will not prevail. Brother Jesse, don't you know how bad the jobs report was for August? Didn't you see how bad inflation was? What are we going to do? I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. We're going to keep preaching the word of God. And we're going to keep singing that God's grace is amazing. And we're going to keep loving sinners and telling them about Jesus. And the gates of hell will not prevent. Well, Brother Jesse, you didn't hear what Sister So-and-so said in Sunday school class. Hurt my feelings so bad. What in the world are we going to do? I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. We're going to keep making much of Jesus. And we're going to keep telling one another that he's a God who forgives sinners. And he's a God who heals relationships with Brother Jesse. Jesse, my grandkids don't want to come. What are we going to do? i tell you what we're going to do. We're going to preach Jesus so that when they come in here for our candlelight communion service on Christmas Eve and when they drag in here five minutes late on Easter Sunday morning, they're going to hear about a Savior who was born in Bethlehem, who was crucified at Calvary and who rose again on Easter and the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And so the Lord says, Peter, Peter, take, I don't have my keys. Peter, here are the keys. Here are the keys. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Now, for any of my Roman Catholic friends that may happen to be watching this, you may be delighted to know that the pronouns in these verses do refer to Peter. These are singular pronouns. Peter, I'm giving you the keys. And it lasts for a chapter and a half because in chapter 18, Jesus gives the keys to the whole church. And he says, the church has the authority to bind on earth as it is in heaven, loose on earth. And part of what that refers to is our membership practices. Really. Did you know that our church has the right to determine who is a member of our church? And our church has the right to determine who is not a member of our church. That's why we do that. That's why, and sometimes it's just a formality, but it's why when somebody presents themselves for membership, they're not just a member here because they decide they are. They're not just a member here because Brother Jesse says they should be. They're a member here because the congregation says we believe they should be part of us. So the Lord gives these keys to the church, but Peter did have a unique kind of role in church history that he preaches in Acts chapter number 2 on the day when the church doors are unlocked and the church is born. He preaches 
or witnesses really to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, the first non-Jewish convert, when he walks into the doors of the church. And he even locks somebody out of the church in Acts chapter number 8. A bad guy by the name of Simon the sorcerer. And it almost looks like that Peter's going to have these keys that he can use to let people in or lock people out. or He's got this special Jesus voodoo. and Whatever he says, God has to agree with it. But it's not really communicated as well in English because the verbs in Greek are in the perfect tense. What that means really is that it would be clunky in English to say it, but it should say something like, whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. This is the work of God and the work of His people working together on earth as in heaven. And that's what the church is supposed to be doing. The church is supposed to be participating in the mission of God that, yes, was active in Jesus, that was active in the apostles and is still active in the church today. And a healthy disciple is a disciple who is participating in the mission of Jesus. A healthy disciple is a disciple who is connected to the church. A healthy disciple is a disciple whose life is being remade the way Jesus wants it to be remade. After all, he says here, Peter, I want to give you the keys. He says, Peter, I'll build my church. He tells Peter, Peter, this is who you're going to be. So as we finish up today, I would ask you, is that true in your life now? It's always been true for Peter. This was not in the fine print. This was the very beginning of the contract. If you follow me, I will make you to become a fisher of men. I will transform you. I will turn you inside out and make you into something you would never think possible. That's what it means to follow Jesus. It means to say, Lord, do with me what you will. It means to know Him as God knows Him. It means to be connected to His people. And it means to be active in His work. Are those things true in your life or not? Or as we've had this checkup today, have you looked at some of these vital signs and realized that you're not healthy? Realize that something's off. Maybe our great physician has looked at you today and spoken in your soul and said, we need to run a few more tests because some of these things don't look the way we want them to look. So how important is it to you to be spiritually healthy? How important is it that you be the person Jesus died to make you? Let's stand together today. Let me pray for us quickly and then we'll sing our hymn of invitation. Our Father, we thank you, God, for revealing to us the truth about Christ. We thank you, God, for making us yours and we thank you for remaking us and making us new We pray now that you would do your work in us. Father, you have maybe challenged or convicted. You have turned over some things in our hearts to expose that which is unhealthy and diseased. God, I pray that you would help us not to be satisfied until we're right with you and right with one another. God, help us not to be satisfied until we're healthy. I pray you would work now in Jesus' name. And amen. Amen.